0: Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the top political stories of the day. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we're joined by Democratic pollster Anna Greenberg, a senior partner of the polling firm GQR. Anna has more than 20 years of experience and is a former professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Over the course of her career, she's worked on many high-profile Democratic campaigns and won the Polster of the Year Award back in 2014 from the AAPC for her work with Mayor Bill de Blasio's campaign for mayor of New York City. Anna, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation to kind of pull the current back on polling and political research more broadly. So to get started, we always like to ask our guests their origin story. So what got
1: you interested in polling and political research more broadly? And what got you working on campaigns? Well, I think from the moment I had consciousness, I was a a political junkie. So I always knew that I was going to be involved in politics in some way. In fact, I think my yearbook, when it said, you know, future plans, it just said politics. One of my teachers said, do do you want to say specifically? I said, nope, it's just going to be politics. I don't know what, but it's going to be politics. Um, So that's always been my my love and um, certainly what I majored in in college and my PhDs in political science. But um, if I'm perfectly honest, my origin story is a little unusual because my father started the polling firm that I now run. And I worked there uh, in high school and in college as like a summer job. Um, you know, when I was in grad school, I would, you know, help out with kind of sophisticated, uh, you know, data analysis when I was learning all of that in grad school. Um, and so it was sort of an on and off summer after school job, um, as well as now my my profession. So um, sometimes when I go to universities and teach classes and people say, I'd love to get into polling. How'd you do it? I said, well, maybe an accident of birth. <laughs> <laughs> so, not really something one can replicate, but um, that's sort of how it all came together. Yeah, what a great opportunity
0: to have that. And it's amazing to me, like politics is so broad. There's so many ways that you can have a job in it. Like I cover ballot measures, which is something I never thought I would do. And you got into polling, which is, you know, a, a niche of its own. You've worked on, like you said, dozens of different campaigns and over the course of your career, do you have any favorites that stick out to you or special memories that you might be willing to share?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I've been doing this for 22 years and at every level from national polling to state to local, including, you know, everything from, you know, presidential independent expenditure research to state legislative research. And honestly, if you have a polling budget, I'll do a poll for you. It doesn't really <laughs> matter what the office is. There's a bunch of things that stand out, but I think probably the one that's most important was um, the work I did with Gabriel Giffords. Um, I did her polling, I was she hired me in 2005. And um, I did all three of her races for Congress, including in 2010, when she was one of three Democrats to win a district that McCain um, had won in 2008. Um, And so, you know, obviously, she was shot pretty close to it was in January, right after she had won her third term. Um, And then, you know, was with her throughout the year, not physically, obviously, but part of the kind of group of of people sort of helping her figuring out net what was next and ultimately her decision to, to step down from, from Congress. But, um, I definitely stayed in the, the world of people around Gabby Giffords. Uh, we've all been together a really long time and stayed together, including working on Giffords, which is her, um, you know, her organization taking on gun violence and then ultimately working for her husband, now Senator Mark Kelly. And, um, I actually knew Mark and Gabby before they were even married, and so did his polling for both of his races for Senate. So, I mean, Gabby is obviously an incredibly sp- special person. She was special before she was shot. She's special after she was shot. And being able to be part of her world and now Mark's world has been really probably the most important work I've done in my, my career.
0: You kind of touched on this in your answer that you've worked on campaigns and polls at all levels of government. So what are some of the challenges that come with that when you're working on a mayoral race or congressional races? How do those strategies differ?
1: Well, there's a lot of, lot of ways they differ. I would say one of the biggest differences when you work on, say, a big, well-funded Senate race and then you work in a mayoral primary in a small town is money. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be less money for polling. Um, and in some cases, there might be no polling. <laughs> and so, in fact, I recently worked on a mayor's race where we never did a poll um, and because there was never enough money for it. And so the big difference is the polling budget. And so what happens when I work on a race where there's not a lot of money for polling Um, is I really draw, I mean, I always do this, obviously, but really draw upon what I know from 22 years of doing this, whether it's working in cities or working in rural areas or working in Western states. I have a wealth of knowledge already um, that allows me, and obviously the other consultants on the campaign also, it's not just me, um, advise a campaign in the absence of of polling. And so I think um, that is probably the biggest difference between sort of the big, well-funded, $100 million campaign that Mark Kelly runs for Senate and the $200,000 race for mayor is just the polling budget's really, really different. But, you know, in terms of my actual time, um, you know, I end up spending a lot of time on these smaller races. And so it's not a great business model. Um, But, you know, I'm committed to electing Democrats up and down the ballot, um, who run cities and states and legislatures is as important as who's in Congress. It's the place where people experience government most directly. And so I really believe in the local work, even if from a financial standpoint, it's not necessarily um, the most profitable work (laughs) that my company does. Ballpedia definitely experiences that as we try to cover all local elections down the ballot too. Mm -hmm. So it might
0: seem self-explanatory, but why do campaigns go to such trouble with conducting polling?
1: Well, I mean... There's the the primary reason is to figure out what the campaign strategy is, not horse race polling, which is what the media does. Uh, We we certainly ask who you're going to vote for, and that's an important measure within a survey, but it's not the primary purpose, particularly early on. You know, when you get into the last two months of a campaign, the horse race piece becomes much more important uh, as we track that and try to figure out if the campaign's on track or not and whether or not we need to make adjustments. But early on, especially when I work on big statewide races, we're often polling a year and a half before the election. Election, it's much more about strategy and sort of how do you take somebody who's running um, their history, their values, um, their vision, and how do you craft it into something that voters, um, you know, is digestible and appealing mm-hmm. to voters. And so we're not sort of making up somebody out of whole cloth. We're kind of taking all the pieces of who they are and sort of trying to understand the best way to frame it um and similarly the best way to frame you know arguments for you know why this person why vote for them as well as you know what kind of contrast we want to make with our opponents and then then also sort of who do we need to be talking to and through what medium and all of that information is important for the campaign in general but then it also informs all the paid communications so tv digital direct mail field, knocking doors, what is the message that we're delivering through all those different channels? Who are we delivering it to? And then later on, you know, surveys help us kind of track um, how it's going. Is it working? <laughs> Do we need to change something? Did something happen that upended the campaign and makes it totally different? And Now we have to rethink what we're doing. So um, it's really a strategic tool more than, more than anything else. And I think that Polling kind of gets a bad rap uh, around kind of accuracy and whether or not it's predictive, which it's not. Polling is a snapshot in time. It's not a prediction of the future. Um, but in fact, that's rarely what we're using it for in, in the world that I I work in. So it's both
0: like a measure that points you in the direction you're going to go with the campaign, but then also takes that kind of like a next snapshot of
1: how things are going. I mean, we, we need to we, we are always constantly... Um, sort of implementing and, and assessing whether or not the campaign strategy is working. And sometimes we don't have tools to change what we're doing. And we do less polling because if you do a poll, but you can't change anything that you're doing, then there's no point in doing the poll. But other times, you know, there's a, there's a real ability to kind of change the advertising, change the attack on the opponent, whatever it is. And you need to kind of keep checking in on the thing that the strategy you developed a year before the the campaign for example and things happen prices go up you know we impeach somebody there's you know dobbs comes down so it's not like early polling you know is always going to reflect what's happening later in the campaign well like you were saying there are some frustration or
0: skepticism around polling that's kind of blossomed over the past few election cycles. And I in my research for this conversation, you were interviewed by the New York Times last year with several other pollsters about your frustrations. Could you explain that whole dynamic from your perspective and what's got you most frustrated about the state of polling today?
1: Well I think the overall dynamic is accuracy and our ability to quote unquote predict electoral outcomes. And like I said, polling polls are not predictions of the future but they get portrayed that way particularly and and the main problem is media polling to be clear it's not the private polling that us political pollsters do most of our polling never sees the light of day no one no one sees it it's all internal um it's very rare that we release our polls to the public Um, and so there was a lot of criticism of the polls in 16 and in 20 um, in particular and to a lesser degree in 18 and 22 about accuracy and what it came down to ultimately was uh, an inability to really really measure the trump vote and so um you know an underrepresentation of trump voters in the electorate you know led polling to look more rosy for democrats in both 16 and in 20 though arguably in 16 the national polls had hillary clinton's you know three-point win in terms of the popular votes you know spot on and certainly in 2020 the presidential polling was not was actually not bad but below the level of president you know the down ballot and so democrats lost things that they did not expect to lose in 2020. But again, that is mostly media and public polling that is not done. And so the frustration is that the quality of, not all of it, there's some very high quality media polls, Um, you know, CNN and NBC, Wall Street Journal. So I'm not suggesting, you know, Pew, um, New York Times polling, there's very high quality media polling, but most of what is sort of in the, um, the bloodstream is not. And so, um, it sort of uh, sort of pox on all your houses. Attack on the polling industry when you're looking at one very small slice of cheap media polling as kind of the indicator of whether or not polling can be trusted or not. So that's sort of the the frustration, which isn't in any way um, trying to diminish the impact of of polling sort of not being accurate. It has absolute implications for what happens in campaigns. And in particular, it has an impact on resource allocation, which is to say, you know, if polling shows that something, a race looks like it's not winnable. And so, you know, the the party decides not to invest in it or the candidate can't raise money and it turns out that race is winnable, that polling can really hurt a campaign. Um, And similarly, if a race looks like, you know, we're going to win it, it's going to be easy, blah, blah, blah. And so no one does very much and the polling is accurate and you lose it. Right. That's, you know, pretty, you know, (laughs) that's pretty frustrating. And so I think that that's where the accuracy piece, you know, is really, really important. And so in the article that you're referring to from The New York Times from, from last year, my frustration was that because there was a lot of concern both in public polling, but also in the kind of more private political polling that we are overestimating democratic support in our polls. We're gonna weight the data, which is to say, take the data when it's completed, when it's collected and make it through statistical methods more conservative, more Republican. You know, based on a set of assumptions about a midterm that should be more Republican um, and, you know, with all the with all the things we know about midterm elections where the party in power loses seats, et cetera, et cetera, high inflation, all kind Afghanistan, all kinds of reasons to think that these these surveys should potentially be more conservative. And so a lot of the surveys were too conservative and underestimated Democratic strength. And so I believe I called that cover your ass polling uh, in the New York (laughs) Times, which is if you're a pollster, it's better to be wrong uh, in that direction. It's better to be too conservative and then win unexpectedly than to um, be too rosy and lose unexpectedly. And I go back to my point about resource allocation. I worked in races where um, like Arizona six, for example, uh, New Jersey seven, where our polling had the race tied. We released it publicly. Um, People didn't believe it. People did not invest in those races. And we ended up, you know, barely losing. So I think in Arizona 6, we lost by about 5,000 votes. That's a district that's um, Tucson, Arizona. That's a district that Mark Kelly and Katie Hobbs both won and Biden won. And, you know, no investment was made for the Democrat there, but um, Republicans, you know, outspent the Democrat, my candidate, 6 to 1. And so it's clearly a district Democrats could have won because Kelly and Hobbs both won it. And that's a case where, you know, people thought, you know, didn't believe the polling. And so one of the things that I think people did not adjust to enough was the Dobbs decision and how much that fundamentally changed, particularly in states where abortion is banned, um, changed the dynamics around Democratic turnout and engagement. And so if pollsters were not adjusting to the impact of the Dobbs decision, the polling would look too conservative. And so that's that's largely what happened. And so I think it was um, most dramatic uh, when we had the red wave polling that, quote unquote, flooded the zone, as some people called it, at the end of 2022, where, you know, the polling has changed and things are terrible and Democrats are going to lose everything. And then everyone said, oh, surprise, Democrats did really, really well. Wow, the polling must be wrong again. But the truth is, the polling was weighted to be more conservative. So is it wrong or did we just overthink or overcorrect, I should say, um, what we thought might be wrong with it? So that was my frustration in 2022 was just that by overcorrecting for past performance, we under uh, sort of didn't fully weren't fully able to show how competitive Democrats were. And it was true in a bunch of seats like Arizona, one, Arizona, six. Um, I can go through a laundry list of races that were really close where we didn't make any kind of investments and we probably could have won them. Kind of going back to the media polling, which I know you're not a part
0: of, but you obviously have familiarity with. What advice or tips can you give our listeners? Because those are the polls they're being exposed to as far as understanding that data and maybe some red flags they should look out for or pay attention to.
1: Sure, I mean, the first thing is we're going into a presidential year. So the state polls matter much more than the national polls. And so while the national polls can kind of give you a sense of the mood and that sort of thing, at the end of the day, they're not really predictive of all that much. You really have to look at polls in Arizona and Georgia and North Carolina and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So the state polls matter a lot more. And honestly, we're too early in the election cycle right now. It's only, you know, September 2023. And so a lot of this state polling is either not being done or, you know, who knows? It could be completely, you know, who knows? What could happen we could have government shutdown we could have you know biden impeachment i mean there's all kinds of things we you know the economy could you know decline i mean there's all kinds of things that could happen and so polling now is not terribly reflective of what's going to happen next november but at, at a minimum focus on state polls and then second you know focus on credible pollsters marist you know the seltzer poll there are state level polls that are done by you know the the university um you know charles franklin in wisconsin You know uh, there are there are individual people who poll at the state level who do really accurate polling, and so paying Quinnipiac, uh, Mason Dixon, Monmouth, uh, New York Times. So look at those polls. Try to stay away from polls that are all done online, if possible, there are really, really huge biases in, in non-probability online panel research. And so if if it's got some combination of phone and online or text to web and online, but polls that 100% rely on online panel are pretty suspect. So try to look at credible pollsters and, and that, would be, that would be my advice, but also know that one of the things that's also been a homework of the last few years is that nothing changes that much. The congressional vote didn't really change very much over the course of 21 and 22 it was basically tied with sometimes Democrats up a couple of points, sometimes Republicans down a couple of points. It just never changed all that dramatically. And similarly, in the 2020 election, the overall national numbers for Biden and Trump didn't change all that much. And they're still not changing all that much. And so I'd be very suspicious of any poll that shows a massive change that's not how politics works unless there's some kind of exogenous event like 9-11 or the financial collapse of 2008. There are certain things that do happen that kind of upend public opinion and change dramatically, but mostly that's not, that doesn't happen. Um, attitudes change slowly over time. Everybody knows everything there is to know about Biden and Trump. There's no new updating. There's no new information about them that's going to dramatically change the horse race. And so also be suspicious of any kind of poll that shows some big change in in a race, particularly at the federal level.
0: You kind of touched on this in your answer. Your career spans 22 years. There has been a lot of technological development in that time, especially with polling. So how have those technological advancements kind of disrupted the polling industry?
1: That's a really long and complicated (laughs) answer. (laughs) It's a good question. You know, over, I mean, if you think about how long I've been doing this, I mean, I go back to when we did pen and paper, and then I actually did data entry into a computer. That was in the 1980s. Um, so now people know how old I am. But um, so I've I've seen it all. I think that the probably the the, the there are, there are two different changes that are probably most relevant. You know, one is kind of the 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 means through which we reach people. So, you know, landline phones were kind of, you know, up until the last, say, 15 years, kind of the way you, you know, you did surveys and you called people on their landlines. And then the the kind of introduction of cell phones, you know, is a massive and disruptive change. And there was a period of time where we didn't know how to include cell phone uh, interviewing in our surveys. And sort of now we, we do. And so we're now at the point where the majority of interviews are done on cell phone and not landline. And so it's not a change you know, in sort of how we do polling per se, it's a change in the way you're reaching somebody. And so the most recent innovation in that regard is text-to-web where people get a text message and then people click on the text message and they take the survey. So it, it's it's being conducted online, but you're reaching someone through their phone. Now, why is the continued use of phone research important? Because we can do representative random sampling, um, which is the way in an ideal world, one should do survey research um, because in order for a sample to be representative of the overall population that you're interested in, it has to to have random selection. People have to be randomly selected to participate in the survey. Um, And when we do phone research in politics, we can use the voter file. So people who listen to this probably know that voter file, like the list of, of voters in each state's public information, there are vendors that, gather the information, we buy a sample from a vendor, and we can select randomly from a list of voters. Uh, And so that is sort of the gold standard. And that is still the most accurate if you are interested in accuracy polling. The second kind of innovation, which is, you know, has, has some benefits and some real drawbacks is sort of the move to online research and particularly panel research, which is a huge part of our business now, which is to say, people agree to participate in an online panel where they then receive surveys to take. And the vast majority of those are, are market research. Um, but there are obviously you know, political polls as well, and there are various panel vendors who just like with phone sample, you go and you basically, you don't buy their sample the way you do with phones, but they, they pull a sample from their panel and you deli- they deliver surveys to them. The problem with these panels is they are what we call non-probability samples, meaning that people are self-selecting, in other words, they're choosing to participate, so they're not being randomly selected. And so, when you have a self-selected, you introduce bias because you reflect the views of people who want to take surveys. Um, And in the online context, they tend to be better educated, um, tend to be more liberal, um, and um, and so all these online panels have major biases that stem from non-random selection, but also from the kind of biases of who takes these surveys. And so when we get raw data back from online panel, it's usually way too democratic, way too liberal. And so you have to really heavily weight it on the back end. <clears throat> there, there's you know, gonna be a new study, some new studies coming out shortly about online panel, non-probability panels, and they, they're incredibly error filled. And so that innovation is, in that sense, um, disappointing. But the reason why people, including my firm, will use these panels is one, it's much cheaper, much, much cheaper. And because the cost of doing phone research is astronomical because of response rates are so low. Um, So that's that's one piece, it's just much cheaper. Um, Two, it helps you reach hard to reach populations. So if you want to do a survey of Jewish Americans, for example, you cannot afford to do that on the phone, you've got to do online panel um cost you a million dollars to do it on the phone um because jews are only one percent of the population so and your chances of getting someone on the phone right um and so it helps you read hard to reach and the other piece which is what i really like online panel for is you can do much more complicated message research so when you do a survey and you read a message over the phone or someone hears it you can, it has to be it has to be pretty short Um, And you don't really know what piece of it people are responding to because they hear a paragraph and then decide whether or not that paragraph would make them more or less likely to support a candidate. When you do it online, people can read the paragraph, they can underline, they can highlight, you can follow up with an open-ended question and ask them what stood out to you. And so what we'll do often is a combination of some what we call online message surveys, and then we will test them in a phone poll to make sure that what we learned, what we honed down, sort of holds in a representative random sample. And so we are, you know, and then the other final thing I would say about online, it's a great way to test ads um, because while it's not, you know, a lot of people are getting ads delivered through OTT, for example. So seeing an ad on your computer is actually, or on your phone. is actually pretty similar to the experience people are having. And so you can test ads with a relatively large number of people as opposed to having eight people in a focus group look at an ad. So there are really, really, really good things you can do with online polling, but from a kind of survey accuracy and data quality perspective, they're pretty poor. That's so fascinating to learn all this background behind what's happening. Because I get
0: like emails like, take this poll, and now it makes sense. You mentioned it's still early in the presidential cycle, but are there any specific races that you are currently working on that you can tell us a little bit more about, or maybe more generally, some dynamics and challenges heading into this next election cycle?
1: Well, I think um, it's a, as a political consultant for both. Particularly for Democratic consultant, which I am, it's a sort of interesting cycle because it's much more of what we call an incumbent protection cycle. So, if you look at the Senate map and the gubernatorial map, there we're mo- we mostly have Democratic incumbents, you know, up in challenging states. So, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, we have the strangeness that is the race in Arizona. <laughs> We've got Tester up in Montana, and so we have a lot of democratically held Senate seats in tough states. Um, And so a lot of the resources are going to be um, directed at those states for the Senate. Um, And then at the congressional level, we have a lot of, um, you know, it's only a four seat Republican majority. And we have a bunch of seats, like I mentioned, Arizona one and Arizona six, and I'm working in both of those races that Democrats barely lost. And there was no Democratic investment in those races. And so you're going to see Um, a bunch of these seats that Biden won, where you have a Republican, where Democrats didn't invest, where you're going to see really, really heavy investment in those congressional races. And so the conventional wisdom is we're more likely to flip the House and lose the Senate than anything else. I don't, I don't think, again, I make no predictions. I can see a scenario where that happens or, you know, Democrats keep the Senate and flip the House or, you know, lose the the Senate and, and, you know, lose and don't have a majority. And I, all the, when you're dealing with such razor thin margins in all these places, you know, any of these scenarios is plausible. Obviously what happens at the top of the ticket is going to be, you know, a huge, it's going to hugely influence what happens in those races. And so, um, you know, whether or not Trump is on trial during um, the height of these races um, is pretty important Uh, Not because it's going to persuade anybody one way or the other about how they feel about Trump, but when all of the oxygen in the political conversation is about, you know, Trump being on trial, it's not helpful (laughs) for whatever Republican arguments want to make about Joe Biden's, you know, not real alleged fake lying dementia um, or, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or the quote unquote Biden crime family, you know, so Trump takes up a lot of oxygen and he did in 2022 and he certainly obviously in 2020 because he was. And so that will affect what happens down ballot. And it's not helpful, I think, to Republicans down ballot to have all the oxygen being taken up by, a, you know, the president being on trial potentially. So um, it's going to be a really, really I mean, all elections are stressful, but it's going to be a really hard cycle to sort of figure out what's going to happen because everything is so close. The presidential race is basically tied right now. You've got, like I said, you've got a whole bunch of these seats that are in some cases rematches where Democrats barely lost or, you know, um, you know, and and those those will be huge spending. You'll have these Democrats in red states like Ohio and, and Montana. And so it's going to be this like razor wire, nail biting, tension filled. And then, of course, there'll be huge pressure on pollsters because when everything is so close and everything's within the margin of error, you can't really say anything with, with very definitively, you know, about, about what you think's gonna happen. Um, And there'll be a lot of pressure on pollsters, particularly if, you know, assuming Trump's the nominee to, you know, also figure out, are we accurately measuring the Trump vote again? And all those kinds of stressful aspects of polling in 16 and in 20, maybe also present in 24. So I don't think there's any one thing I'm working on that strikes me as like particularly important relative to everything else, but I just think the entire soup of very tight races very strange national environment is um, gonna be um, it's gonna it's gonna make for a lot of tension filled and nail biting nights I think yeah for sure speaking of like tight races I saw an
0: article recently that was kind of discussing which states are still swing states and which states have become swing states so from your polling experience what which states are swing states today as compared to maybe 2016.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if opposed to 2016 is is exactly the right way to frame it, because I think that because of 2016, states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, which people thought were pretty solidly blue, people now realize are not solidly blue. And so while I feel pretty confident that Biden will win both those states, um, it certainly puts, you know, Michigan and Pennsylvania, you know, on the map. In perpetuity until such time as they're not right. So I think that that the 2016 made states that we thought were blue wall, quote unquote, blue wall states, um, you know, were more competitive. And I put Wisconsin in that category too, though I don't think Wisconsin was ever as solidly blue as Michigan and, and Pennsylvania for a variety of reasons. But Wisconsin's in that is in that category too. On the other hand, 2020 put some states on the map. Um, that, his, that I think in twenty sixteen, people did not ever think of a swing states, and so you've got Arizona, um, which is now has you know two Democratic senators. Well, Cinema obviously left the party, but she ran as a Democrat, and Biden has won Arizona. You have Georgia with two Democratic senators, and Biden won Georgia. Um, Biden barely lost North Carolina, so you know I think North Carolina is on the map as a as a swing state. So I actually think sixteen and twenty upended a little bit what states we think of as swing states, and if anything. They also kind of put to rest any chance of Florida and Ohio for Democrats, at least presidentially. Um, So it's you know the the, the swing state, the slightly it's slightly different um, than it was pre sixteen, but it's you know the the, the Trump is kind of Trump accelerated some trends that were you know, slowly moving like college educated becoming more democratic. He he accelerated some of these trends. And so some states like Arizona that have big college educated suburbs moved more democratic because Trump moved college educated men and women in a more de- democratic um, direction. And they particularly college women haven't come back, right? They haven't come back to the Republican party. So some of those, I think trends were already in place or, uh, you know, emerging. But he accelerated them and that affected places like Georgia and and Arizona that have really big educated suburbs, for example. It's all going to be quite
0: an experience to watch in 2024. That's all the questions I have for you today. So thank you for coming on and spending your time with us and sharing your expertise with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, you can learn more about Anna's work at the link in our show notes. We'll be back next week with another episode. Make sure you subscribe to On the Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening.